Today's service, as Wages says, is about our benediction. The word means literally good words, although it's often translated, translated from that Latinate word into the word blessing, which is an interesting question. Is it a blessing? I'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, I want to give you a little bit of a history of how we got our benediction, which if you're a very diligent reader of our website or my occasional columns, you may already have heard. Um, but I won't assume that of anybody here. Interestingly, it's been 10 years since we began ending our services with a benediction. I should say, we already had a benediction. We would say different words near the end of the service each week. We didn't always say the same thing, and we didn't end with those words. It was always followed by the postlude. In some congregations, people leave the hall during the postlude, not here. We like to stay and listen to it. And we also like to applaud the musician for the, all the things that they've played during that service. So when the postlude was the very last thing, the service ended with applause. This didn't always feel appropriate to the theme or the mood of the service. And it also tended to create, to create the feeling that we had been at a performance, which, you know, a concert can certainly be a peak spiritual experience, but it was a very different feeling um, than the feeling that we otherwise might leave, um, leave our service with. So I had visited other congregations where the very last words are a blessing or a benediction, and I really loved the way it felt for that to be the very last thing. It seemed right to have the postlude followed by its applause and then an element that would help us to leave with a sense of participation, something we all do together in the service, a moment of mutual care and a turning outward after this internally focused time. You know, um, psychologists will tell us that the, we have a particular bias, a cognitive bias towards um, both the beginning of things, you know, first impressions really do have extra weight, and the most recent thing that has happened, recency bias, that is called. This is a really good thing to remember, um, either if you are interviewing for a job or you're interviewing someone else, say, um, that the first thing that they say as they enter the room, or you say, interviewee, as you enter the room, is likely to have an outsized impact, as is the very last thing. Now, if you're an interviewer, it's good to remember that and try to compensate for it by thinking extra hard about all the things that happened in between, which might be even more important. But we do have this bias. And so wise interviewees and wise leaders of services will give a particular thought to how do we want to end? That's what's going to stay with people. Dan Harper, our um, then Minister of Religious Education, as he and I were chatting about this, suggested having the same words each week, and I liked that. And although it filled me with trepidation to ask everyone to hold hands, which was something we didn't normally do, I knew I wanted for us to make a physical connection. Those of you who know Dan will not be surprised to hear that idea came from me, not from him. <laughs> so. 
Okay, we were going to say the same words every time, have a suggestion to hold hands. What words? The first thing my eye fell on was this passage from Walt Whitman that uh, Weja shared during our centering words. It's from the preface to Whitman's Leaves of Grass, the volume of his poetry that he worked and reworked and revised, published in different versions all through his life. I'll probably give a sermon on that passage at some point. I mean, I could, I have so many thoughts um, and questions just about that piece, Argue Not Concerning God. But, you know, that passage didn't really feel right as something to end with every time. It sounds like a command more than an invitation, albeit a command to do some terrific things, you know. Uh, despise riches, hate tyrants, have patience and indulgence toward the people, um, dismiss anything that you learn that insults your own soul. Lovely, lovely thoughts, but it didn't seem quite right. Dan and I both had stories relating to the benediction said in the Unitarian Universalist Church of Concord, Mass, um, where he grew up and where I have visited. Actually, we really had the same story um, of going to the home of someone who belonged to the congregation, a different, two different uh, families, as it turned out, but we had both had this experience of going to somebody's home who belonged to the Concord congregation and seeing these words posted on or near their, their door so that they, they had taken it so much to heart that they put it where they would see it not only when they left church, but when they left their home. Um, and Dan echoed that when we got in the way of saying our benediction, he, he made uh, copies to go um, in the doors of the doorways of all the classrooms so that the kids see them, anybody sees them when they leave those rooms. We um, both really liked the way they had become um, a blessing that people bestowed on themselves daily. So I knew these um, and liked them and wondered where they'd come from. So I poked around a little bit. So here, first you can listen to the Concord version. Um, and um, you might notice some things that are similar and some things that are different. Go out into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no person evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all beings. Um, these are such ancient and familiar words that somebody, I, I'm, for, I'm forgetting which of you, remind me after the service, said, uh, they said, the, they said our benediction at Queen Elizabeth's funeral. <laughs> um, they come largely from um, Paul's letter to the people of um, Thessalonica. Um, and, um, but they've been changed over the years, including for the Concord Church. And then I found this from the Reverend Dr. Brent Smith's website. He used to be um, a minister at All Souls UU Congregation in Tulsa. Don't know if it was or is still a blessing that they use. But it's very similar, has a couple different things, like adds the lines, love all men, love all women, love all children, love all souls, serving the Most High, and rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Now, I'm guessing that both of those have their origins in the Presbyterian worship book, um, because I've found another version, 
that uh, on, online, not from a Unitarian Universalist church, that says it's adapted from the Presbyterian worship book and the Bible. Similar, but with the words, honor every person that you meet and love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, so I looked at all of these and I really liked the Concord version, but before adopting it for UUCPA, I wanted to think, is there anything really central to my theology or the practice of this congregation, the priorities of this congregation that's not in there? Now you may have some things as well. I'd be really interested to know what isn't in our benediction that you would put there if it echoed the most important things to you. What I saw looking at the Concord version was there wasn't anything about love. Well, it was implicit. Lots about how we treat people, that presumably is because we're expressing love, but it, it wasn't said in so many words. Okay, so I wanted to add a line about that. And what else? Well, if love is the work and the reason for our lives, what sustains them, at least mine, and looking around how we conduct ourselves in this congregation, a lot of us, is beauty. Cherishing it, noticing it, creating it, just making room for it to, to blossom in our awareness. So I wrote two more lines. Rejoice in beauty, speak love with word and deed. And there we had it. That was a challenge um, because we needed to hold the paper at the same time. We didn't have the screens yet and we didn't know it by heart. And also because as I said, we weren't too used to it. And then not everyone is comfortable holding hands. And even before COVID, it was important to be able to decline if one was sick or didn't want to get sick. Okay, remember, wash your hands frequently, especially after you hold hands with people. So I've gotten more and more explicit about saying, you know, there's other ways to show that you're connected without holding hands, if that's what you prefer. Didn't need to see the words. Y'all memorized it long before I did. And people began reaching for the nearest hands and stretching to include those who were further away, just to symbolize, I'm there with you, even though we can't actually reach. And that's become an important part of the ritual. We don't just remind ourselves of some of the things that we want to do as we go forth. We're practicing them right there and then. Let's, let's do this right now. Remind ourselves of a life that's lived in love, courage, compassion. Now, much like the hermit in, in the story that Wei just shared, um, finally said. <laughs> this is really all stuff we already know. There are no grand pieces of wisdom we never thought about in Again, recency bias, right? What's the last thing that we want to hear before we make this transition from the service to the rest of our week? <clears throat> the rest of our week. It's, it's like checking when we leave the house, you know? Got my keys, phone, wallet. Okay, you know, got courage, compassion, hope, 
Love? All right, ready to go out into the world. You know, this series, it's called Why We Do That in the Sunday Service, but it's really about why we have service. that the mission task force has been posing to itself and to us. Why does UUCPA exist? What are we for? Why are we here instead of not here? And from the answer to that question follows the how and why we have Sunday services and everything else that we do together here. And from the answers to why do we have services follows why we end the services in a particular way. What is it that we need to take with us from this one hour into the other 160, 167 or however many it is until we come back here? Something I've noticed, maybe you notice this too, if you come week in, week out and say these words is that different lines come into prominence at different times. Something that might have just seemed like rote to you and didn't catch your imagination for months or years, suddenly because of some shift in your own circumstances becomes the most important line that week. Like if you're in a lot of conflict with somebody dear to you, suddenly return no one evil for evil becomes what you need to take with you. Or, you know, if a friend is ill or somebody in your life is grieving, help the suffering. Of course, you're always for helping the suffering, but suddenly you really hear that, oh, that's, that's what I need to be doing this week. I want to help the suffering. And if depression is looming over you, then maybe hold fast to what is good is the line that really stays with you calls out to you from our our benediction. As Weija and I were talking it over, um, they said it it seems kind of like um, a mission statement in some ways. It's not the mission of the congregation, which as I said is under review and we're looking for the words that express what's important to us. And yet it it does read a lot like a mission statement. And that sent me looking up mission statements. Here's a whole bunch I found. Um, I mean, you can find pages and pages of them on the internet. Um, Here's a whole bunch from uh, various companies. Mostly it doesn't mention the name of them um, in the mission statement, but I started to notice something. um, And maybe you'll notice it too when I read you several in a row. Um, Just as a hint, it's not so much noticing what's there as what's not there. I'll be curious to hear what you notice. Okay, mission statement. To inspire humanity both in the air and on the ground. This one is a rare one that says the name of the company right here. 3M is committed to actively contributing to sustainable development through environmental protection, social responsibility, and economic progress. To move the web forward and give web designers and developers the best tools and services in the world. To refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. To improve its customers' financial lives so profoundly they couldn't imagine going back to the old way. 
to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. To nourish people and the planet. We're a purpose-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. Quality is a state of mind at, I could say blank, but why conceal the fact, Whole Foods Market. Here's what I noticed. These are all for-profit companies. Their mission, so I understand it, and so they report when they have to make big decisions, is to make money, make a profit for their owners, which is often shareholders. These are public companies, I think, uh, I think all of them, or for their main shareholders, especially. That's hardly even in these. Uh, it's kind of hinted at in the one from Coke, the one that's mission is to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, which I think means to give everybody a dose of caffeine. Okay. <laughs> Coke says part of their mission is to create value. I think that's a euphemism for money, to earn money. Hey, I mean, that's what Coke is here for, okay? Not just to inspire optimism or go really well with Mexican food. Here's a rare one that makes it explicit. Shape the future of the internet by creating unprecedented value and opportunity for our customers, employees, investors, okay, our owners, and ecosystem partners. Okay. I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed of, right? This is the purpose of these companies. It's just weird that it's not there in the mission, you know? I mean, we know that for these companies, profit is the primary or a primary mission. We know because of the way that they operate, that they might change their mission or certainly change the way they operate depending on how the profits are going. You know, we see it in the news in this area all the time, that if the last quarter or the last year, if you want to think really long term, is disappointing in terms of profit, then they might raise prices or more likely lay off a lot of people, sometimes shift how they carry out the mission. And I mean, not just if, um, if they've had a loss recently, they've operated at a loss. And not just if the profit isn't quite what they hoped, but if the profit isn't growing as fast as they hoped, they may lay off a huge portion of their workforce. So clearly, profit is a really big part of the mission. Everybody knows that, who works there, everybody who knows it, who buys the product or the service. There are alternative ways of doing business if that's what you want. There's nonprofits, there's government agencies that do some of these things. There's dual bottom line companies like Ben and Jerry says, you know, we have a mission of, of earning money for our shareholders, our owners, and we have a social mission and we want to hold those things in balance. We don't want one to operate at the cost of the other. But that's not what these companies whose mission statements I've just read off are doing. That's not how they operate. That's not their charter. 
So it's weird, this double nature of saying we're saying what the mission is. It's so important, and we're going to put it on the letterhead and paint it on the walls and put it on the website and everything, but we're going to leave out a key or the key part. You know, euphemisms are usual, are, are, are useful. I mean, I think of the example of, um, you know, you're out to dinner and somebody in your, in your party gets up and says, excuse me, go away for a little while and they come back. Or if they want to get really explicit, they say, got to find the restroom. And I'm joking there because a restroom, restroom is a euphemism. I mean, we don't go there to rest, okay? Unless they're gone for a really long time and you got to knock and make sure they're not taking a nap in there. No, there's, we don't use a euphemism there because there's anything shameful about going off and doing what we do in the restroom. We just have this general sense that, you know, the dining room and the restroom are things that are well separated. And so we just say, excuse me, got to find the ladies and off we go. That all makes sense in that context. But in the workplace, why separate the workplace from the workplace? Why not articulate the actual mission for which we're working? When you're spending one quarter to one third of your waking hours doing something, why conceal what it is? Well, anyway, the reason I digress about all of this is because I think that the general statement of mission out in our wider world and in so much of the lives of so many of us points up two really important things about our benediction, our services, our purpose as a congregation. One is we need a time, a place, a community in which we do get explicit about mission, in which we lay it all out there. And it's countercultural just to be explicit in, in this place, this community, this whole culture in which there's a, this weird double message about what a mission is. It's swimming against a tide of hypocrisy just to say, hey, we have a mission and we're going to keep checking it and checking ourselves against it and see how we're doing. And what is a successful year here at UUCPA is how well did we live up to our mission? I'm not saying we do this nearly as often as we should, but we should, right? And then, and, and we, say our, we say our mission every time we gather. So we can keep checking. And then a year where we didn't do that so well, well, we either say that wasn't such a successful year, or, you know, maybe we're telling ourselves something. Maybe our mission isn't what we say it is, and we need to revisit it. That has to get done now and then, like we're doing now. So that's number one. It's just really powerful to say, hey, this is a place where we're really going to live by our mission, and we're going to put it everywhere and say, nothing hidden. This is what we live by. And the second thing is, we need a time and a place and a community that focus their attention and our attention on our mission, the purpose of each of us, the why of our lives and the how of our lives. We need that. That's not necessarily our workplace. 
It's not necessarily any place else in our lives. And we really need it. Fred Bulow of Blessed Memory used to say he came here, and I'm, I, I can't remember exactly how he put it. I'm remembering something like he said, he came for a tune-up of his moral compass, but that's kind of a mixed metaphor. <laughs> he came here to remember where his life was headed, what direction he wanted to go, to be reminded. We have so many things demanding our attention, our time, our life energy that aren't aligned with our life's purpose. Sometimes they even undermine it. We need a reminder. So what about this thing about this blessing? It really is still kind of a list of things to do, right? It's in the imperative mood. A blessing would be something like, blessed be, or may God's countenance shine upon you and give you peace. That's part of the priestly blessing of ancient Israel. Although if you know grammar, imperative and subjunctive mood are very similar. It's still saying, I hope something happens. But you know, ours, it's less explicit than Whitman's, but it's of the same tone. It's the imperative, imperative mood. Do this, do that to us here, what we should each do. We could soften it. May we hold fast to what is good. May we help the suffering. But it's still, you know, it's kind of on our shoulders. Here's what you are to do as you leave. I think there's something really interesting in Whitman that gives us something to think about about our own benediction. That whole paragraph of his, that list of things that here is what you shall do, there's a, there's a reason, there's an end point. He says, when you do these things, then your very flesh will be a great poem. With our benediction, the and then, what will happen if we do these things is unstated, the same way that the you is unstated in an imperative, like hold fast to what is good. What will happen if we do all these things? That's where the blessing comes in. We need a reminder of our purpose and our opportunities to enact our purpose, not just in the hour here and there in our spiritual community, the service, our small group that we go to, our choir practice, all those things, but in the days in between. And carrying that reminder with us, that in itself is the blessing. That's what makes our days a blessing to ourselves as well as to whomever we meet. When we take with us our deepest intentions, our reminder of what we all know already, when we take the time to reflect our purpose, what's important to us. When we take that into ourselves and out into the other hours of our week, that is a blessing. Our very flesh becomes a great poem. 
so may it be.